cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, June 12th, 2012. All right, I, I should warn you, today we're going to do our light edition on Tuesday. I apologize that that's the case, but the, the radio segments that I'm working on... There actually, there's some big moving pieces, and I'm trying to, well, I'll, you'll see as the week develops. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is, well, no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the discernment work, compare those statements, ideas to what God's Word says to basically help you see whether or not you're being taught God's Word correctly or if it's being twisted and uh, bad things are happening. You can't teach orthodoxy by teaching heresy as if it's the truth. Does that make sense? It's just something we work with here. Uh, so talking about heretics, um, sad news today. Uh, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog has announced his retirement from uh, from blogging and uh, and doing social networking and stuff like that. Is he apparently he went and saw his doctor. He's uh, in his 60th year and has decided that he needs to eliminate all. Uh, well, there's certain things that uh, certain stresses that you you need to eliminate, and he. It wants to spend the remaining years of productive work being productive in a particular way. So he has announced that he's no longer going to be writing for the Pyromaniacs blog. Um, I don't know what, I don't think he's re, uh, retiring from uh, John MacArthur's uh, ministry out there in California, but uh, we're sad to hear that uh, Phil Johnson will be retiring from the Pyromaniacs blog and, um, and from social networking. Uh, he, he, well, it's going to be tough to uh, fill that void, but uh, we're going to continue with the series. Well, done by Phil Johnson a while ago on his survey of historical heresies. We're going to be listening to part two of his lectures on the Arian heresy, which is actually appropriate for today. Funny enough how that worked out. Uh, today, the church remembers the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea being the uh, the church council 
where Athanasius was at, uh, that was called in order to address directly and solve and resolve the dispute in the uh, Christian church over the Arian heresy. And basically it came down to a fight over one iota. But uh, I'll let uh, Phil Johnson fill us in with the details as to this. Uh, it, this is part two of his historical survey of his of heresies in the ancient church. This is the Arians, part two. Here's Phil Johnson. Now, last week we discussed the history of the Arian controversy, and the whole hour was more like a history lesson than a, than a really a study of the scriptures. In fact, I think I left several of you hanging, wondering what. The biblical answer to this heresy is, and for that I apologize, but we just didn't have the time. And I hope to remedy that this morning. I want to get into the scriptures. But first, for the sake of those who uh, weren't here last week, and for those like Carl who don't take careful notes, I want to review the main facts of the Arian controversy. This was a controversy about the deity of Christ. That's the essential issue you need to keep in mind. The Arians, just like today's Jehovah's Witnesses, taught that Christ was a created being. That was the heart of their heresy. If you just want to write down one point and you get that one, you've got it. They taught that Christ was a created being. They were willing to call him the firstborn of all creation, just like modern Jehovah's Witnesses, but they insisted that Christ was less than fully God. They were willing to give him that position as the highest of all creation, but they were not willing to see him as God. And last week I gave you the biblical grounds on which Arius made those claims. Let me review the key Arian proof texts. These, by the way, include all the same texts that we would use if we wanted to prove that Christ is fully human. Listen to these texts. I'll just read them to you. Luke 2.40. Speaking of Christ as a child, he grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. The Arians pointed to that and said, look, he's growing, he's increasing. If he's God, how could he grow in wisdom? They pointed to Luke 2.52, which says, likewise, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And they said, if Jesus is God, how could he grow in favor with God? How could he grow in wisdom if he's already omniscient? They pointed to John 4, verse 6 which describes Jesus at the well there where he met with the woman of Samaria. And it says, Jesus was weary. He was tired. And the Arians said, if he's God, how could he possibly be tired? They pointed to John 19, verse 28. Jesus hanging on the cross says, I thirst. They said if he was God, he couldn't really be thirsty. John 13, 21, which describes that last evening with his disciples at the upper room. And John 13, 21 says, Jesus was troubled in spirit. They said, that's not befitting a character who is God. This proves that Jesus is not God. They pointed to Matthew 24, 36, which speaks of the timing of his return. Jesus was talking about that day and that hour, you remember? And he said, of that day and that hour knoweth no man. And the cross-reference in Mark says, he said, even, even the Son of God doesn't know it. So the Arians said, well, if he's God, he'd have to be omniscient. How can he say he doesn't know the hour of his own return? And so Arius and his followers pointed to those verses. Those are the key ones. Those are the main ones. And they said that he was not God. He couldn't be God, they said. And they cited the words of Jesus himself from John 14, 28, where Jesus said this, My father 
is greater than I. And that's the Arian said, the final proof text, from Jesus' own lips, my Father is greater than I. They essentially claimed that that is Christ himself teaching Arian doctrine. Now, those are tough, tough verses to respond to, and I hope to get a chance to do that this morning. But right now, I just want to set the historical context for you in your mind. This controversy arose at the beginning of the 4th century, you know, the year 300, 311 actually is where we would date the beginning of the Arian, heresy, the Arian controversy. There was no doctrinal controversy of this magnitude ever prior to this within the church. The deity of Christ had always been assumed by Christians and never needed to be defended against attacks from within the church. Many of the leaders of the church were at a complete loss to know how to answer these Arian proof texts. They couldn't defend the deity of Christ. They'd never, been a, they'd never been forced to do that. Now imagine, try to, let's try to be sympathetic to the plight they were in. Imagine if you were there and someone threw those proof texts against you that I just read and said, this proves that Jesus is not God. And you have no resource to go to for answers. There's no book shack. There's no library. There's no place to go where you can look up the answers to these texts. There's no con commentaries yet that anticipate this heresy. We can sympathize, I think, with the leaders of the church at the beginning of the fourth century who encountered this heresy and did not know how to answer it. This was a very confusing issue. And the stakes were extremely high. The very definition of Christianity hung in the balance. Because if Arius was right, then the people who worshipped Jesus as God were polytheists. They were worshipping multiple gods, God the Father, God the Son. That's what Arius accused them of, polytheism. But if Arius was wrong, then he was setting forth a false Christ. This was not a minor issue. And to complicate everything, this controversy arose at exactly the moment, the very same time in history when Constantine, the emperor, converted to Christianity. Constantine finally declared an end to the persecution of Christians for the first time in three and a half centuries. Christians who lived in exile, people who'd been in hiding for years, were finally able to go home and to worship Christ for the first time ever, openly, right out in the open. Doctrinally, they were in a very weak position. You, you could say, in some ways, the climate worldwide for Christianity exactly paralleled what you see in Russia and Eastern Europe today. The end of long time of persecution, but doctrinally, the church was very weak. And they were not equipped for this sort of internal attack on the truth. They were used to attacks from the outside. They were used to persecution. They were accustomed to people putting weapons at their heads and saying, deny Christ or die. They were prepared for that sort of attack. But an attack from the inside, attacking the deity of Christ, they were unequipped to answer. And because of the end of the years of persecution, the prevailing mood in the church was people did not want to fight against other professing Christians over a doctrine. You can see that. They didn't want to wage war over doctrine right now when the end of persecution occurred. And the Emperor Constantine, we saw this last week, he was sort of the leader of those who were who were asking for peace, asking for an end of hostilities. He was saying, let's not fight over doctrine. 
He was hoping that Christianity would kind of be a vehicle by which he could spiritually unify the Roman Empire. And he had no sooner joined the church than he discovered these serious doctrinal divisions among Christians. The leading bishops of the church were against one another. And he wanted to put an end to that controversy. We can sympathize with that desire. We can certainly put ourselves in that historical context. And you see, this was not a time when anyone was eager to fight. And yet, as Athanasius, and I, you inter I introduced you to him last week. In fact, let me give you, last week I gave you five people to remember. This week, I want to just pare that down to three. We're just going to focus on the three main ones this week. So if you missed last week, you have fewer people to remember. Constantine, the newly converted emperor, he's one. He's the first Christian ruler of the Roman Empire. Converts to Christianity, discovers this conflict. There, on the other hand, there is Arius. Arius is the man for whom this whole controversy is named. You could think of him as the first ever Jehovah's Witness. Denied the deity of Christ. He started this controversy in the first place by claiming that his bishop, the bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, who happened to be the very same man Athanasius worked for, Arius claimed this guy was a heretic because this bishop was teaching that Christ and the Father are of the same substance. Arius said, that's heresy, and that launched this controversy. The third name you need to keep in mind is Athanasius. I'll spell it for you. A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. Athanasius. Somebody asked me last week if there's any relationship between the word anathema and Athanasius' name, and the answer is no. Anathema means accursed. You see that in Scripture. If any man you know, loves not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, cursed. Athanasius, the name, the Greek, the Greek word Athanasius means immortal one, person without, who, who doesn't die. Basically, that's what his name meant. Athanasius, immortal one. Sounds alike, but it's, it has nothing to do with anathema. Now, in the year 325, this is about 10 years after this controversy first arose, Constantine, who'd been aware of it for years and trying to, he'd written letters to the, to the bishops involved saying, put aside your differences. Constantine decided he was going to put an end to this controversy once and for all by convening a council of bishops at Nicaea. This is the Nicene Council. You've heard of that. Nicene Council, they produced the Nicene Creed. Uh, this was a very important moment in church history. And Constantine was the one who brought all these men together. This was the first time ever that so many bishops from all over the world had ever been brought together to discuss a doctrinal issue. First council like this ever. Nicaea, therefore, is known as the first ecumenical council. When we use the word ecumenical like that, we mean worldwide. It was the first council of worldwide bishops, the first ecumenical council. And men were brought at the expense of the Roman Empire altogether to this little town called Nicaea, close to Constantinople, and they were, they were convened there in an auditorium to discuss this issue. Now, both Arius and Athanasius were present at this council, as was Constantine. So all three of our guys were here at this council. Now, neither Arius nor Athanasius was a bishop at that time. Both of them held lesser offices. Arius was there, invited to defend his doctrine. Athanasius was there as the assistant to the bishop of Alexandria. So he was just a lesser church leader at the time, although he was already well known for his works 
on the incarnation of Christ. In fact, I brought a copy of his book so you can see. This is still in print. This is Athanasius' book on the incarnation of Christ. He wrote this book when he was about 20 years old, before the Nicene Council. And this book had been distributed worldwide. It's a, it's a defense of Christ's incarnation. Christ is God. And it's, it's very readable. In fact, this edition has an introduction by C.S. Lewis. Uh, and, and if you see this anywhere, you ought to get it. If, if, uh, I think it's in the book shack, and if it's not, I also have put this on the World Wide Web. And if you, if you have access to the web and want the address, see me afterwards, and I'll tell you where you can get this. It's very readable, very simple to read. Athanasius wrote it in layman's language, and he was well known by the time of the Council of Nicaea for this book, for his defense of the incarnation of Christ. And so because of that, because he'd written on this issue, because he dialogued on this issue, he had what is surely a behind-the-scenes influential voice at this council. Even though we don't see Athanasius recorded in any of the official, he wasn't a bishop, he didn't say anything at the council, it's almost certain that behind the scenes, some of the bishops were looking to him for leadership. So he held a very influential position. Now, the Nicene Council adopted a creed that, was, that strongly affirmed the deity of Christ. That creed, which we have today as the Nicene Creed, is still adhered to by all the major branches of Christianity. Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, all affirm this creed, the Nicene Creed. It's a very short creed, and I'm going to read to you just the first half of it. Just This is half of the creed, but this, is, this has the key part in it. This was their creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of His Father, the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now that's the key phrase, one substance with the Father. That's the very idea that Arius had labeled heresy against the Bishop of Alexandria. Now, the Nicene Council was held in 325. When it was over, and they affirmed this creed, that seemed like a resounding defeat for the Arians. They lost, basically. And the creed that was affirmed went against everything Arius taught. You'd think that that would be an end to the Arian heresy, right? That's what Constantine hoped. That's what everybody hoped. But it was not to be. The truth is that in the 40 years that followed the Nicene Council, it was Athanasius, not Arius, who was most under attack. During those 40 years after this council, Arius waged aggressive campaign to try to convince people that he was right and the council was wrong. And in the end, he was successful in turning nearly the whole church in favor of his doctrine. This is a fascinating era of history to read, but even though the council decided against Arius, Arius, in the 40 years that followed, was able to turn nearly every bishop in the Catholic Church against the Nicene doctrine and in favor of Arianism. Even Constantine, the emperor, who originally asked for this council in the first place, who supported this terminology, one substance with the Father, Constantine became an Arian sympathizer. And he pleaded later for the restoration of Arius to the church. And he also called for the, for the exile of Athanasius. The truth is, Athanasius, for the rest of his life, 
lived under persecution. He was exiled and deposed five times. And there came a time in the mid-fourth century when every bishop in the church, except for Athanasius, was either Arian or semi-Arian. They either were totally Arian or they sympathized with the Arians. And in fact, just before Constantine died, he was baptized by an Arian bishop. And the emperor who followed Constantine became a full-fledged Arian. And he stepped up the attack on Athanasius. So the rest of Athanasius' life was difficult. And at one point, somebody said to Athanasius, the whole world is against you. Like, why don't you give up the fight? Athanasius' response was, then Athanasius is against the world. And that is a saying that's most frequently associated with his name. The Latin is Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. This man was an incredible man. He had extraordinary stamina and very strong convictions. And he enters the scene as a young man. He's assistant to one of the great bishops of the church, but he's basically a nobody. And, but more than anyone else in his age, Athanasius clearly saw the evil ramifications of Arianism. And he concluded early on that Arianism is not Christianity. He wrote a book later in life called Against the Arians, and he wrote this. This is a quote from Athanasius. He said, Those who consider the Arians Christians are in great and grievous error. They have not studied the Scriptures, nor do they understand Christianity at all. You see how boldly he painted it? He said, Arians are not Christians. And that is what made Athanasius unacceptable to most of the churchmen of his time. Everybody else was willing to compromise in a way that would gloss over this error. Everybody else was willing to accommodate people who refused to worship Christ as God. They would have been happy to yield ground on this issue without a fight. But Athanasius said, that's not possible. Because to regard Arians as genuine Christians is to deny Christ. Because Arianism, Athanasius said, is a denial of all that is truly Christian. History has proved that Athanasius was right. Because wherever Arianism has flourished, Christian, true Christianity has declined. As I said last week, Athanasius went to the scriptures alone to make his case. He did not appeal to church tradition the way modern Roman Catholicism does. Even though tradition would have supported his case, he could have appealed to tradition. He didn't. His appeal was to Scripture and Scripture alone. Athanasius wrote at least four books against Arianism, and they're all still in print today. Every one of them is unique. It, it, you'd think he, could just, he would just be rehashing four books, come on, against one heresy. He's rehashing the same arguments over and over and over. That's not true. Athanasius went deep in this, and he dredged up every possible argument against the Arian heresy. It's it's unlikely that you could find an argument in favor of the deity of Christ that Athanasius didn't use. It seems like he just he scoured the scriptures and made this his life's work and found every argument that's ever been used to support the deity of Christ. This morning, I want to highlight nine of the strongest lines of argument that Athanasius used against the Arians. Nine lines of argument. Number one, and this was the main one, he said that Christ has the same nature as God. Christ has the same nature as God. 
Now, denial of this truth was the main area, uh, the main error of the Arians. We've looked at a capsule summary of their biblical proof texts. In essence, they took every shred of evidence for the humanity of Christ and tried to use it as a proof against his deity. See, they could not imagine a Christ who was both fully God and fully human. And so they thought his humanity and his voluntary subordination to the Father were proof against his deity. Remember, I cited that verse of the Arians quoted Christ saying, my father is greater than I. And they used this as the argument that Christ was created with a different substance from God the Father. They said he cannot be God if the Father is greater than he is. He can't be of the same substance if, father, if the Father is greater than the Son. That's what the Arians said. But Athanasius pointed out that John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I, must be understood in the light of Philippians 2, 6 through 8, which explains to us in what sense the Father was greater than the Son. Let me read Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, Although Christ existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Familiar passage. Athanasius said this is the sense in which Christ said he was subordinate to the Father. It was a voluntary submission to the Father. It was a voluntary taking on of humanity. Notice that Philippians 2 explicitly states that Jesus existed in the form of God before his incarnation. That's what the Arians wanted to deny. And Athanasius used this doctrine, the eternal preexistence of Christ, as a major point against Arianism. You, you may recall from last week that Arius wrote this about Christ. This is what Arius said about Christ. There was a time when the word was not. There was a time when he was not. Athanasius repeatedly quoted that against the Arians and said, you can't hold to that view and believe what Scripture says about Christ. Quoting this phrase, there was a time when the word was not. Athanasius challenged Arius this way. This is a quote from Athanasius. He said, what is the source of your discovery of these things? Nowhere have the Holy Scriptures said such things about the Savior. Rather, the Scriptures use such words as always, everlasting, and always coexisting with the Father in the form of God and such things. Athanasius cited John 1.1, 1, 1, which says, Christ was with God in the beginning, and he was God eternally. And he cited Revelation 1.8, which refers to Christ as the one who is and who was and who comes. And Revelation 1.11, where Christ announces himself as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. This was Athanasius' primary argument for the deity of Christ that Scripture attributes to Christ everywhere a divine nature and an eternal existence. He's eternal, just like God. In the words of Philippians 2.6, he exists eternally in the form of God. Athanasius said, in other words, he is of the same substance as God. Theologically, by the way, this is exactly what the word begotten means. You ever thought about that phrase, the only begotten Son of God? What does that mean, the only begotten Son of God? What does God mean in Psalm 2, verse 7, when he says, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. 
theologians refer to this as the eternal generation of Christ. Athanasius said this begetting took place in eternity past. It speaks of an eternal reality. Words like, to us, when we hear words like begotten and generation, those suggest ideas about the origin of things. I began my existence when I was begotten by my father. But what does it mean to say that Christ was begotten by his father? Since he's an eternal being, that cannot refer to his beginning. It doesn't refer to the beginning of anything. What does it mean when it says he was begotten of the Father? Biblical expressions like that, and you see them frequently in Scripture, always speak of the oneness of essence between the Father and the Son. That's the idea. Christ is begotten of the Father simply means he is of the same essence as the Father. He derives his essence from the Father. And since both Father and Son are eternal, theologians speak of this as eternal generation or the eternal begetting of Christ. It's a slightly confusing term, eternal generation, because generation suggests to us an idea that's incompatible with eternity. But understand it like this. What it aims to state is the very thing that Arius denied, that Christ is eternally the same essence as the Father. For that reason, when you see this expression, the Son of God in Scripture, when Jesus claims to be the Son of God, it is, that is an inevitably uh, reference to his deity. That does not speak of his humanity. That's precisely what the term Son of God communicated to the Jewish people in Jesus' own day. And that's why they attempted to stone him for blasphemy, because he claimed to be the Son of God. It was a claim they understood that he was of the same essence as the Father. When you see the word only begotten Son, that doesn't speak of the incarnation. In fact, at the incarnation, it wasn't the Father that begot the Son. It was the Holy Spirit that came on Mary and begot her. So when Scripture says Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, that's speaking of an eternal reality, that he derives his very essence from the Father. He's of the same essence of the Father. That's line of argument number one for Athanasius. Christ has the very same nature as God. Unpacking that doctrine, by the way, is what took, Arian, uh, took Athanasius four books to refute the Arian heresy. That is a deep doctrine, and I could go on and on about it, but I have to move on. Argument number two, the Old Testament predicted a divine Savior. I only need to sample a few key passages to make this point. I'll just give you a few. Psalm 2, Messianic Psalm. This was recognized as a Messianic Psalm even before Christ. And in Acts 13.33, Paul affirms that this psalm has a messianic meaning. He's preaching, and he, re he re refers to this psalm as a prophecy about Christ. Psalm 2 closes with these verses. Listen to them. Worship Jehovah with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, there are the phrases, worship Jehovah with reverence and do homage to the Son. Those are parallel phrases. And in Hebrew parallelism, that means the phrases are logical equivalents. To worship Jehovah means to do homage to the Son. Not only that, this psalm presents the Son as someone in whom believers can take refuge. This holds up the Son as the Savior, a Savior who is God's own Son, identical in character and in rank with God the Father. 
Now, all these will fit together like pieces of the puzzle. Let me move on. Psalm 110, also identified as a messianic psalm by the writer of Hebrews. And here in Psalm 110, David calls the Messiah Lord. Verse 1, Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Jesus himself quoted this verse in Matthew 22, verses 43 through 45, to demonstrate that he existed before David and that he was superior to any earthly king. That's the point it's making. It speaks about the preexistence of Christ and calls him David's Lord. Other messianic prophecies get even more specific in ascribing deity to the Lord's anointed one, the, the coming Messiah, the familiar one, Isaiah 9, 6. Clear promise of the Messiah. And it gives this string of names that apply to the Messiah. Wonderful, Counselor, listen to this, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or better translated, the Father of Eternity, the Prince of Peace. And another prophecy by Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, gives him the name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Micah 5.2, another messianic prophecy, says that Christ's birthplace would be in Bethlehem. And it speaks of them, of Christ, with these terms. Listen to this. Speaking to the city of Bethlehem, from you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's ascribing to Christ, to the Messiah, an eternal preexistence. Malachi 3, verses 1 through 2. It has one of the most clear and vivid references to the coming of the Messiah. Mark chapter 1, verse 2, identifies this as a prophecy of Christ. Listen to Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. Now notice that that verse portrays Jesus as Lord, coming to his temple. He's coming to do a work of divine judgment. Now you take all those verses, and those are just a sampling of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. You put them all together, and it's clear that the one who was coming was eternal. He was Lord. He was worthy to judge. Why? Because he was the incarnation of God. That was line of argument number two. Line of argument number three. Jesus uses the covenant name of God. Jesus uses God's name and applies it to himself. Here's a very strong argument to use against the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses derive their name from, the, from their belief that Jehovah is the one true name of God. But did you realize that Jesus took Old Testament passages that used the name Jehovah and he applied those verses to himself. You want to argue with a Jehovah's Witness, this is a good line of argument to take. Show him that Jesus went to the Old Testament and used the name Jehovah and applied it to himself. Quoted verses that explicitly used this covenant name of God, and he applied them to himself. For example, Psalm 23.1, very familiar. Jehovah is my shepherd. The word Lord there is Jehovah, the Hebrew word Jehovah. Jesus clearly applies this to himself in John chapter 10, verse 11, when he says, I am the good shepherd. And the writer of Hebrews also applies this to Christ in Hebrews 13, 20, when he writes, the God of peace brought up from the dead, 
the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. Even Jesus, our Lord. Jesus, our Jehovah. He's the shepherd. He's the shepherd of Psalm 23. Isaiah 6.5 also uses the name Jehovah. This is where Isaiah sees his vision of heaven with the Lord high and lifted up, and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the, the Lord of hosts. And the Hebrew word there is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. That was Isaiah's word. My eyes have seen Jehovah. But the Apostle John, referring to this very same incident, writes that Isaiah saw Christ's glory, and he spoke of him, John 12, 41. And also, another familiar verse, Isaiah 43, this is the prophecy of John the Baptist from Isaiah. Jesus is called Jehovah. Listen to this. A voice is calling, clear the way for Jehovah in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. The New Testament applies that to Christ. John the Baptist was here to fulfill that prophecy, to make clear a way for Jehovah. Who's Jehovah? Jesus. Here's a familiar passage, Joel 2.32. And it will come about that whosoever calls on the name of Jehovah will be saved. Both Acts 2.21 and Romans 10.13 quote that passage and apply the title Jehovah to Christ. Whoever believes on the name of Jehovah will be saved. That's Christ. Christ himself is Jehovah, come to earth in human flesh. That was line of argument number three. Number four, titles that are reserved for Jehovah are applied to Christ. There are certain titles in Scripture that Jehovah says are unique to him, and Christ takes those titles on himself. For example, in Isaiah 10, verse 20, we find this expression, Jehovah the Holy One of Israel. Now, the Holy One in that verse is said to be no less than Jehovah Himself. And in Acts 3, verses 13 through 14, Peter tells the men of Jerusalem this. He said, You delivered up Jesus and disowned Him in the presence of Pilate. When He had decided to release Him, you disowned the Holy and Righteous One. Peter's using a name that the Old Testament says belongs to Jehovah. And Peter applies it to Christ. I mentioned earlier that Athanasius cited the book of Revelation, the Alpha and Omega, and all of that as proof of the eternality of Christ. And in those verses, Christ describes himself as the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now listen to what Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6 says. It's from Isaiah. Thus says Jehovah, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Jehovah Sabaoth. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. Now that verse in and of itself offers strong proof for the Trinity because it differentiates between Jehovah and his Redeemer Jehovah. But it also reserves for Jehovah and Jehovah Sabaoth this expression, the first and the last. That's a title that is reserved for God alone. So when the book of Revelation repeatedly applies this term to Christ, It is saying in the plainest possible terms that Christ is God. He is Jehovah. Did you realize that even the title Savior in Scripture 
is reserved for God. Isaiah 43, verse 11, says so in the plainest possible terms. God says this, Isaiah 43, 11, I am Jehovah, and there is no Savior besides me. That's why Paul, when he wrote to Titus, did not shrink from applying the name God and the title Savior both to Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's the proper translation of that passage, by the way. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, includes an interesting prophecy. In context, this is Jehovah speaking. If you want to look it up later, Zechariah 12, 4 tells us so. Down in verse 10, he says this, Jehovah speaking, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him. Who was the one who was pierced? It was Christ. And John 19, verse 37, specifically applies this text to Christ. But Zechariah says, that's Jehovah speaking. It's Jehovah that was pierced. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 says this, Jehovah, your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Yet Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, applies this title, Lord of Lords, to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Again and again and again, Scripture takes titles that the Old Testament says are reserved for Jehovah alone and confers those same titles on Christ. He is Jehovah. In fact, here's a good hermeneutic to practice. When you read the name Jehovah in the Old Testament, you know it in your translation because it's the one that's in cap and small caps, Sometimes you see Lord just spelled capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Other times you see it capital L, small cap O-R-D. When you see that cap and small cap, that means in the original it's the name Jehovah. Whenever you see Jehovah in the Old Testament, understand that as a reference to Christ. Almost every reference to Jehovah in the Old Testament is a reference to Christ. He is Jehovah. That's what these verses are saying. Athanasius made that point. That was his line of argument number four. By the way, this is my order, not his, but nonetheless, he used all of these arguments. Line of argument number five, Jesus possesses all the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, by definition, the incommunicable attributes of God are those things that can be true of him alone. See, God is holy. That's one of his attributes, but that's a communicable attribute. He can communicate that to us. To some degree, we can be holy. The incommunicable attributes of God are those that he alone possesses. He's omniscient. I'm not omniscient. I could never be omniscient. That's an incommunicable attribute. It's true of God alone. And we've already noticed that Athanasius made a great deal out of the fact that Christ is eternal. Eternality is one of the incommunicable attributes of God. Only God is truly infinite. Only God is really eternal. And we've seen the biblical proof already that Christ is eternal. But did you realize that Scripture also teaches that Christ has all the other attributes of deity? He's omnipresent, for example. Matthew 18, 20, he said, Where two or three have gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. In Matthew 28, 20, he promised, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Those were 
promises that hinged on his omnipresence. He's omniscient. Now, I could give you a lot of texts on this, but let me just give you one, Revelation 2, 23. Christ describes himself in these terms. He says, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. That's a statement that depends on his omniscience. He's omnipotent. He has all power. Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's immutable. That is, he's unchanging. Hebrews 13.8, a familiar affirmation of the immutability of Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. He's immutable. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's eternal. All the incommunicable attributes of God. There's much, much more in Scripture that could support this point. But since our time is limited, I'll let just those few proof texts underscore the point that Christ embodies every one of the attributes of Jehovah God. Colossians 2.9 sums it up for us. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And Hebrews 1.3 makes the same point, saying Christ is the radiance of Jehovah's glory, and he's the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is Jehovah God. He is one, in essence, with God. That's what these verses are saying. Line of argument number six. See how fast I'm going through these? Number six, Jesus does the works of God. Jesus does works that God alone can do. For example, Christ created all things. John 1.3 says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Athanasius pointed out that if this verse is true, if all things were made by him and there's not anything that was made apart from him, then Christ himself cannot be a created being. Or there would be at least one thing, himself, that he didn't create. Colossians 1.6 rules out the possibility that Christ could be even the highest archangel. It says this, Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Verse 17 takes that even a step further and, and pictures Christ not only as the creator, but also the sustainer of all things. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. That could be said only of God, only of an eternal being. Also, he forgives sins. He does the works of God. One of the works of God is he forgives sin. And this was a huge controversy in Jesus' earthly ministry. Matthew 9, verses 2 through 7, Mark 2, verses 5 through 10. We can't read these, but these give accounts, both of those passages, of how, and you remember these accounts, of how the Pharisees were offended because Christ forgave sins. And in Mark Chapter 2, verse 7, they ask, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, they understood exactly the implications of his authority. If he had the power to forgive sins, and if he claimed to have that power, he was claiming to be God. Only God can do that. He has the power to raise the dead and to judge final judgment. In John 5, 22, Jesus says, for not even a father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. That is a very explicit claim of deity. And in verse 24, Jesus even makes the basis of judgment the issue of whether someone hears his word or not. 
Acts 10.42 says, Christ has been appointed by God as the judge of both the living and the dead. Acts 17.31 says the same thing. And on and on, I could quote scriptures all day. 2 Timothy 4.1, Christ Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. Again, that's only a sampling. But it's enough to make the point that Jesus does things that only God can do. That was line of argument number six. Line of argument number seven. These points get stronger as I go, by the way. Jesus receives worship. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in Matthew 4? Satan said, you know, I give you all, all the kingdoms of the world. You'll just bow down and worship me. And Christ responded to him by quoting the first commandment. Begone, Satan, he said, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Very strong statement that worship is reserved for God alone, Matthew 4.10. But repeatedly, the Gospels tell us that people worshipped Jesus. I could give you a string of proof texts. Let me just give you two. Two samplings, Matthew 14.33, John 9.38. You can look those up later. Describe situations where people fell on their faces before Christ and worshipped him. And never once did he rebuke anyone for giving him this kind of worship. Never did he refuse anyone's worship. In fact, in John 10 and Matthew 26... He corrected people, rebuked people, who scolded others because they worshipped him. People would occasionally come along and say, remember the woman broke the alabaster box of ointment over his head and people said, shame on you. And he rebuked the people who, who scolded her for worshipping him in that way. He accepted the worship. Now contrast Peter's response when Cornelius, Acts 10.25 says, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. He's worshipping Peter. Some Catholics today do that. Verse 26 says, Peter raised him up saying, Stand up! I too am just a man. Revelation 19.10 and Revelation 22.8-9 describe situations where also angels refused worship from the Apostle John. Remember he fell on their face and the angel said, Get up! I'm not God. Don't worship me. But Scripture explicitly states that the Son of God is to be worshipped. Listen to this, John 5, 22 through 23 says this, The Father has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Also, Jesus placed himself on the highest possible level because he made himself an object of our faith. Listen to this, John 14, 1, familiar verse. Maybe you've never thought about its implications. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That would be blasphemy if he were anything less than God. He's making himself an object of our faith. You want ultimate proof that Jesus is not an angel, not a created being? Hebrews 1.6 says that when the Father brought the Son into the world, he said, and let all the angels of God worship him. Here's God the Father calling on all creation to worship the Son. Proof that Jesus is God because he's worthy of that kind of worship. Now let me move on to the final two lines of argument that prove that Jesus is God. And I, like I said, I've saved the strongest for last. I think these get stronger as we go. Because if Jesus is God, you would expect the Bible to say so in the strongest of terms. People always say, well, why don't the Bible just say Jesus is God? Settle this whole thing. The fact is, it does. Listen to this. John 1, 
the most familiar text in this regard. Turn to that passage and let's look at the first three verses. John 1. Some of you have this memorized even. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now that is the strongest possible explicit declaration that Jesus is God. It's a very strong statement on the deity of Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses like to home in on that phrase, the word was God, and try to explain it away with some bogus Greek grammar to say it doesn't really mean what it says. Let's forget that phrase for a moment, because every phrase of this statement that I just read to you is significant. Look at the first phrase, in the beginning. That harks back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 1.1. And it sets the beginning of John's gospel in eternity past, before anything was created. This is in the beginning. This is before creation. In the beginning. And the next phrase, the word was with God, underscores the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. This, this expression, the word was with God, is explained, look down at verse 18 which says this, the only, it speaks of the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. That's the phrase correctly translated. That's what you have if you have the New American Standard. Calls him the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus Christ was, number one, eternally in the bosom of the Father, somehow distinct from God and yet at the same time identical to him. So the New American Standard translation of verse 18 is accurate, by the way. In the Greek, the literal wording is this, the only begotten God. This is another straightforward statement of Christ's deity. So the whole principle of the Trinity is wrapped up in this expression, the word was with God. Now the third phrase is the one that the Jehovah's Witnesses contest uh, always, the, the word was God. This is precisely and literally what the, what the expression says in the Greek despite what some Jehovah's Witnesses will try to tell you. The Word was God. That's what this says. Someday maybe I'll go into the grammar of that, but we just don't have time this morning. Now, there are more verses in the New Testament that explicitly call Jesus God. For example, when the Apostle Thomas saw Christ after the resurrection, remember what he exclaimed? My Lord and my God. And Jesus did not rebuke him, but commended him for his faith. John 20, verse 29. Uh, other verses, I'll just list them for you. Titus 2.13 and 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Both of those passages refer to Jesus as our God and Savior. Remember, we already talked about the word Savior is a title that's reserved for God alone. And here Paul and Peter both refer to Jesus as our God and Savior. Philippians 2.6, the verse we started with, says that he existed from all eternity in the form of God. And 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. What is the true God? The only proper antecedent for that phrase is Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then there's Hebrews 1.8, which quotes God the Father speaking to the Son. Hebrews 1.8, God the Father says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
There, God the Father speaks to the Son, calls him God. It can't be any more explicit than that. Line of argument number nine. Finally, if Jesus is God, we might expect him to say so. And this is line of argument number nine. Jesus himself claims to be God. You ever wondered why Jesus didn't just come right out and say, I am God, and put an end to any possibility of confusion? I used to wonder that. I read the New Testament. Why didn't Jesus say, I'm God? And then I realized, actually, he does. He does precisely that. What he says in John chapter 8, verse 58, was to his Jewish audience, a far more explicit statement than if he had merely said, I am God. Turn to John 8, because this is important to see this passage in its context. John 8, we'll start in verse 53. We see here that the Pharisees were becoming uncomfortable with the claims Jesus was making. They'd seen him heal people. They'd heard him forgive sins. They'd heard him claim to be the Son of God. And they began to think, this man is claiming deity for himself. They were suspecting that he was putting himself on a level of authority that no man has any right to. And so they say, verse 53, Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Now follow this and understand how offensive this would be to these Jewish people. Jesus is saying, look, you worship God. God honors me. What does that make me? And then he goes on to say, and you have not come to know him, verse 55, but I know him, and if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now pause there for a minute and think about the ramifications of this. Jesus is saying, you claim to worship God, God honors me. The God you claim to worship, I actually know. You don't really know him. If I said I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. I mean, he's, he's, this is as offensive as it could possibly be to these men. And then he says this, your father Abraham, because they saw their tie to Abraham, their uh, genealogical ties to Abraham were the basis for their hopes of salvation. They believed they were chosen by God because of their lineage. And Jesus says, your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, how would they read that? Put yourself in the mind of a first century Jew. And here's this, uh, apparently a man saying to you that Abraham, who you trace your lineage to, saw my day and he saw it and, and was glad. He rejoiced to see my day. The Jews, look, verse 57, therefore said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now, they're really angry at this point. This is blasphemy as far as they're concerned. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before Abraham was born, I am. And look at verse 59. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Notice that these men understood precisely what Jesus was saying. And because he obviously also understood what they were asking, his reply is 
all that much more significant. They were challenging him on what they thought was blasphemy. They were saying, are you claiming to be God? He understood exactly what they were asking, and they understood precisely what his answer meant. He was telling them that he was God. Not only that, he was using the name that Jehovah himself had revealed to Moses at the burning bush. God said, remember Moses said, what's your name? God said, my name is I Am has sent you. Tell Moses, I Am has sent you. That's my name, I Am. That was the name that God used of himself. And here Jesus takes it and appropriates it for himself. Before Abraham was, I Am. Jesus could have made no stronger claim of deity. If this had not been his meaning, if, if Jesus were merely claiming to be the firstborn of all the angels, he would have said something like, before Abraham was, I was. That isn't what he said. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And he used the name of God. Now the Gospel of John includes a whole series of statements that Jesus made about himself using this name, I am. This is a theme through John. Sometime you ought to do a Bible study through the book of John and just study the phrases that Jesus, where he used this expression, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Each one of these statements, if you study them in context, reveals that Christ was making claims of absolute deity. Every time he used this expression, I am, and applied it to things like, we already saw the shepherd from Psalm 23, the door, he says, I am the door. These were all claims to deity, every one of them. I am the bread of life. That's what the Old Testament said about Jehovah. About these I am statements, Athanasius wrote this. I'm quoting from Athanasius's orations against the Arians. He said this, in the expression I am, is indicated that the Son is everlasting and without beginning from before every age. Therefore, it is obvious that the Scriptures speak about the everlasting nature of the Son. Those things which the Arians utter, He was not before and when. Words like that are phrases for things created. They are foreign to the Word of God. And in other words, the incarnate Word of God. They're foreign to Christ. You can't apply terms like that to Christ. Before, he was not, those sorts of things. They don't apply to Christ. Christ says of himself, before Abraham was, I am. And so we come full circle to the first argument that we began with, that Christ is an eternal being with exactly the same nature of God. When you mount all this up, and remember that Athanasius spent his lifetime writing books with these sorts of arguments, develop them far better than I could in just one hour. The biblical evidence for the deity of Christ is conclusive. It's overwhelming. It's irrefutable evidence. In fact, what we've covered here is really only a small sample. I haven't even mentioned, for example, John 10, verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. There's other verses, too, that could be adduced to prove conclusively, according to Scripture, Jesus is God. Jesus is Jehovah. All that evidence can't be swept aside or ignored. And Athanasius put that forth to his generation. He set it out there and he said, you can either believe it or you can condemn yourself to an unthinkable eternity. To deny that Jesus is God in the face of so much biblical evidence is to put yourself outside the realm of true Christianity. That's why he said Arianism is not Christianity. And if you really study the scriptures... You have to agree he's right.
In fact, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. John 8, 24. There, Jesus holds forth this name, I am, without a predicate, as the object of our faith. Unless you believe I am, Jesus was saying, unless you believe I'm Jehovah, unless you believe my deity, you will die in your sins. He's setting himself in the place of God. And he can do that only because he is God. And those who know that Scripture is the Word of God can only believe and join in the worship of him Scripture says, at whose name every knee shall bow. Well, I wish we had more time. There's a lot more biblical evidence even that Christ is God, but that's enough to give you sort of a summary and to see how this Arian heresy was put down. Just to close the book on the history of it, there was a subsequent council at the beginning of the 5th century, near the beginning of the 400s, the Council of Chalcedon, which finally, once and for all, put an end to Arianism and settled this heresy. Arianism, wherever it's arisen since those days, has always been in the form of cults, like Jehovah's Witnesses. It's always there. Arianism will probably not go away until the Lord returns and brings all things into subjection to himself. But from that day till this, Arianism has been universally held by the whole church, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy and Protestantism have all agreed, we've all agreed with Athanasius that Arianism is not Christianity. You deny the deity of Christ, you deny the very essence of Christianity. That's the way it is. And, and I think that we've shown that conclusively from scriptures. Well, let me close in prayer and we'll end it there. Father, in the face of so much Biblical proof of the deity of Christ, all we can do is fall on our faces before your Son and give him the honor that he's due. And I pray that our lives would be lived to his glory and that all that we do and say would be worthy of the worship he deserves. May we subject ourselves to Christ as God because he is God. We thank you that you gave your Son to come to earth in the flesh to die for our sins. And the fact that he is God and eternally shares the very nature of God only makes the wonder of that sacrifice so much greater than we can conceive. We thank you for Christ and for the clear proof of his deity. And I pray that our lives would be lived in submission to him. We pray in his name. Amen.